in To Kill a Mockingbird, Scout Finch reflected on her father Atticus's wise advice. He said, you never really know a man until you stand in his shoes and walk around in them. Hi, I'm Katie M. Shannon, and this is In Their Shoes, a podcast dedicated to uncovering lives that have been lost to time. My goal is to share the stories of everyday men, women, and children who didn't make it into the history books. They may have been forgotten, but now they will live again as we explore their lives and say their names. I believe that through the power of story, we can build an understanding of the past that will help heal our present and pave the way for a better future. One story at a time, one person at a time. On this episode of In Their Shoes, we will walk with Florestine Cortez Bolt. On May 27th, 1820, a group of people, some free and some enslaved, gathered around the baptismal font of the Catholic Church in Natchitoches, Louisiana. Victorine, an enslaved woman considered the property of Jean Cortez, held her baby before the priest to be baptized. The child was named Florestine, and the priest noted that she was a quadroon, a term used at the time to indicate that a person was um, of one quarter African descent, meaning they had one African grandparent or, or grandparent of African descent and three grandparents of European descent, hence the one quarter quadroon. Florestine's father was Jean Cortez, and in the eyes of the law, Florestine and her mother were his property. Florestine's godparents were her white half-brother, Benjamin Valcor Cortez, and a close family cousin. How had Florestine's mother, Victorine, become part of the Cortez household? Through Jean Cortez's wife, Mercelite. Mercelite was a member of an elite Natchitoches, Louisiana family, the Rukiers. When her father died, Mercelite Rukier Cortez purchased Victorine from her mother. In fact, she paid $2,000 for two people in that single sale. That's $38,000 today. Victorine, a Creole mulatress, and her mother, Frozine, a Creole negress. Now, Creole is, it means born in Louisiana in the colony. It is not a racial definition. It is not defined by race. It is described by place of origin. It means born in Louisiana or born in the colonies. There can be Creole slaves or Creole free people of color or Creole white people who owned plantations. So this is, they spoke French, they practiced Catholicism and they shared this cultural heritage. Florestine's life was complex from the very beginning. She lived in her father's house, but not as his daughter. She, her mother Victorine, and grandmother Frozine were his slaves. The female head of the household was not Victorine, but Jean Cortez's white wife, Mercelite. And the children who ran up the stairs and along the gallery included not only Florestine, but also her white brothers and sisters. In fact, it was quite likely that Florestine was assigned to be one of her white sisters, ha white half sisters, maids. 
and kind of served her and um, helped dress her and attended to her needs. Almost two decades later, when Florestine was around 19 years old, her mother had somehow earned or acquired enough money to purchase herself. She was a midwife, and it's possible that the Cortezes allowed her to keep some of the money she earned, an unusual but not unheard of arrangement. By this point, Jean Cortez had died, and his wife, Mercelite, was not opposed to the idea. On January 15, 1839, Victorine paid the widow Cortez $1,000 for her freedom. That would be around $29,000 today. Her daughter's white half-brothers, Jean-Francois and Benjamin Cortez, witnessed the act. A year later, Victorine had earned enough money to buy one of her sons and emancipate him. Yet Florestine and another son remained in the hands of the widow Cortez, still enslaved, still considered property. When the widow Cortez died in 1842, she bequeathed certain slaves to her children and grandchildren. Florestine's half-brother was given to the widow's grandson, William Beresford Carr. Florestine, now 22 years old, and a mother became the property of another grandson, Coriasmus Laplace. Florestine and her children, Victoria, age four, Charles, age two, and a one-month-old infant, were valued at $1,000, which would equate to approximately $33,000 today. Meanwhile, it was the widow's wish that her 50-year-old grandmother, Frozine, Frozine, be freed if she was able to pay the $500 she was worth. That would be like coming up with $16,000 today when you, had, you were enslaved and had no salary and no means of saving. First owned by her father, now owned by her nephew, Florestine remained enslaved for six more years until the father of her children took the necessary steps to change her life. David H. Bolt, a Maryland-born dentist, had first begun a relationship with Florestine around 1838, when she was 18 years old. Bolt served as the parish coroner, coroner in 1846. He eventually purchased Florestine and their children. Then he went before the State House of Representatives in 1848, to emancipate them. The act of manumission reads, Florestine and her seven children, to wit, Victoria, aged 10 years, Charles, aged eight years, David, aged five years and nine months, Thomas, aged four years and six months, William, aged three years, Mary Elizabeth, aged one year and five months, and Laura, aged three months, are hereby emancipated and released from the bonds of slavery. It was signed by the governor himself. After they were freed, did in many real estate transactions, buying and selling land and lots in Natchitoches. By 1850, Florestine owned $1,500 in real estate, $500 more than what her husband owned. She'd given birth to another child, Josephine, and her mother, Victorine, was also living in the household and still working as a midwife. The Bolts sent their children away to be educated in Ohio. The boys went to St. Joseph's Academy and the girls to St. Mary's Academy. After serving on the police jury, first as a member of that parish's governing body and later as the president of the police jury, 
David Bolt eventually decided to move his family to neighboring Wynn Parish. He amassed significant wealth. In 1860, he had accumulated $150,000 in real estate and $60,000 in personal property. That would be worth almost $7 million altogether today. Florestine, a former slave, now owned $40,000 in real estate and had a personal estate of $20,000. This would total $2 million today. She had also added to her family, Alice, age 10, Henry, age 6, Washington, age 5, John, age 4, and one-year-old Eunice, also known as Annie, now completed the family. Florestine was a free woman, a mother of 13 children, a property holder, and a cherished wife. Her children were being educated. She must certainly have held great hope for the future. Now it's important to discuss this complicated and rather unfortunate chapter in Florestine's life. When I saw the amount of property that she and her husband owned, I knew that some of that wealth had to be an enslaved people. I didn't want it to be true, but my hunch was correct. In 1856, David Bolt purchased St. Maurice Plantation in Wynn Parish. David owned 129 enslaved people. Florestine possessed 26 enslaved individuals. The Bolts reaped the benefits of this essentially stolen labor on their large cotton plantation. How could a woman like Florestine, who had previously been enslaved, who had experienced the dehumanizing and brutal effects of the chattel system, choose to become a slaveholder herself? I turned to Isabel Wilkerson's masterful book called Cast for some insight. Florestein was born into a caste system. Accumulation of wealth and increase in status at South at that time necessitated owning a plantation and slaves. Florestein was a product of her time and slavery was an unquestioned reality of her life. It is unfortunate that she and her husband chose financial advancement instead of rejecting or dismantling the system. At the end of the day, people are people. Most let their own self-interest dictate their path. Florestine and David Bolt bought into the power structure in which they lived. Florestine was by no means the only free woman of color who owned slaves in Louisiana. It was fairly typical for that time. And yet for us, it is fraught with moral and ethical issues. David Bolt and several of his sons served in the Confederate Army. However, upon the arrival of the Union Army, they switched allegiance and worked with Republicans to promote equal rights under the law and finally to dismantle the racial hierarchy and the planta planter elite's power structure. He was late coming to the cause of justice and civil rights, yet he did arrive there. I do not pretend that this somehow makes up for his having been a plantation owner. At the same time, there is something, something to be said for people evolving and changing. It must be acknowledged that he and Florestine ultimately shifted perspectives. After the Civil War, David Bolt became a radical Republican politician. The Bolt sons also followed in their father's footsteps. The Bolts were vilified by conservative former slaveholders and the White League, a group that was essentially an early version of the Ku Klux Klan. 
David Bolt was the parish tax collector, and the Bolt sons held the offices of judge, deputy tax collector, deputy treasurer, sheriff, and police juror. Embroiled in political difficulties, Bolt was included in many lawsuits and investigations. The Bolt family frequently faced violent threats from the community in which they lived. People referred to David Bolt as, quote, the carpetbagger political boss of Natchitoches Parish in Ward 5 of Wynn Parish. Over a hundred years later, his name could still incite fury in Natchitoches residents. Dr. Bolt was the big political wheel of Natchitoches for about 10 years during Reconstruction days, a Natchitoches resident recalled. He appointed his relatives to every Natchitoches parish political office worth having. Many Republican leaders, both black and white, during Reconstruction in Louisiana were accused of corruption and conspiracies in an effort to turn public opinion against them. The truth of the matter was that rich white men who had been in power before the war wanted to regain that control and also reinstate white supremacy. A man from Maryland with a wife who had been enslaved with biracial children whom he not only acknowledged as his own but educated and helped hold elected office was a significant threat to the white planter establishment. The Ku Klux Klan circulated posters around Natchitoches suggesting David Bolt be injured or killed. Threatening accounts against him were routinely published in the parish's newspapers. Florestine Cortez Bolt's exact date of death has not yet been located, but it appears that she died during this incredibly stressful and traumatic time. In January 1875, David Bolt and other Republican politicians fled Natchitoches, making their way first to Shreveport, and then to New Orleans via Galveston. The Old Guard Confederate newspaper penned a truly horrifying account of the incident and made blatant its prejudices and support of violent overthrow of the government. Here's part of the article. Prince Bolt, I quote, the prime mover and instigator in all the corruption, abuse, and villainy under which the white people of Natchitoches Parish have for the past four years been groaning, departed on Monday last. He leaves us execrated by everything virtuous in our community, and his name, D.H. Bolt, will be remembered among generation, coming generations as that of a monster. Coming to this parish years ago, he, as a young man, made many friends and was received in certain circles, social circles until his alliance with a quadroon woman, by whom he has a large family, when he took that social level to which such conduct would entitle him. We have done with him, thank God. Depart in peace, ye cursed. We will never forget your villainy, your outrages upon us. May you live execrated and die damned. So said the Natchitoches newspaper about David Bolt. Little was known of the Bolt family for some time, particularly in Natchitoches, but one of Florestine's sons, William H. Bolt, remained there and became a figure of controversy in 1889. When Harrison, a Republican, was elected president, William H. Bolt hoped to be appointed to the position of register of the land office at Natchitoches. What William did would later cause the family's name to be printed on newspapers across the country. An article in a Brooklyn newspaper entitled A Remarkable Story from the South stated that, quote, 
At first, Bolt did not feel that the slight taint of Negro blood he knew to be in his veins would act as a bar to his advancement. He is seemingly pure Caucasian and bears no appearance of mixed blood. Yet William witnessed many black men and men of mixed race refused offices. Quote, the idea dawned upon the man from Natchitoches that his hopes were forever gone unless every scrap of evidence of his mixed ancestry should be made to disappear, the paper reported. So Bolt conceived the idea, the paper said, of gaining entrance to the recorder's office in the town of Natchitoches, and while the recorder and his deputies were absent, of destroying any and all records of this marriage of his father and mother, wherein is contained the statement that the latter was of mixed Caucasian and Negro blood, end quote. William then headed to New Orleans on his way to Washington, D.C., but en route, he, um, his tampering with the courthouse records was discovered. The Natchitoches sheriff sent a telegram to the chief of police in New Orleans, and William was arrested. The newspaper article then launched into what it deemed a, quote, curious family history, telling a salacious and utterly false tale about Bolt, falling in love with a cursed octoroon in the New Orleans slave market. The article sexualized and objectified Florestine, painted David's love for her as tainted and sordid, and gave an overly romantic and exaggerated account of the Bolt children. It became clear that this article, first published in the New Orleans Times Democrat and reprinted in papers across the country, aimed to out the Bolts, call attention to their biracial mother, and use the seemingly scandalous story they concocted to sell papers. Not wanting to ever put out false information, I'm not going to share a significant amount of this article. But in an effort to present the incredible challenges and outright hostility facing people like the Bolts in that era, and sometimes even today, I will read some of the article. So here is an excerpt from the article. When the Bolt family had finally all collected in Natchitoches, they found their position a trying one. Utterly isolated from the whites and too highly cultured to enjoy the society of the race whose blood coursed in but small measure through their veins, they were as utterly desolate as the exile in the depths of Siberia. But the father was kind and indulgent. He was prosperous, and the family bore its burden with becoming fortitude. No breath of suspicion attached to the girls, and they grew up highly respected but utterly shunned. One ray of light, however, in the perpetual social gloom of the Bolt household came when a scion of one of the noblest of the Creole families in the parish fell in love with the beautiful Laura Bolt, a perfect blonde whose beauty is to this date a common theme of discussion in Natchitoches and addressed her. To the credit of the girl, be it said, she rejected him, declaring that they could never be happy, no matter how much they loved each other, for her were, for her were, um, he would never, he would never fall to her social level and she could never hope to rise to his. Two of these girls, however, married men of pure Caucasian blood. And so ends that excerpt. The paper went on to make the Bolt family story into a kind of morality play, one in which white is good and black is evil and loving someone of the opposite race is a sin. 
Laura, the daughter, is considered righteous because she refused to marry a white man who loved her and, quote, taint him. Meanwhile, David Bolt, the father, is vilified for his love for Florestine and is ultimately punished, apparently by divine providence, in experiencing, quote, general destruction, fortune and all, dying an utter physical and financial wreck. Surely no more powerful illustration of the fatal taint of Negro blood can be found than in the history of this Natchitoches family, the article concluded. This article embodies what the 1890s would bring to this country. Violence, lynchings, Jim Crow laws, segregation, and white supremacy characterized that decade and many, many decades to come. Most disturbing of all was the way the newspaper tried to identify where the Bolt children were living, as if in an effort to make them targets, potential victims of violence or ostracism. They note that most of the son's whereabouts were unknown, proving the Bolts to be the wise individuals Florestine and David raised them to be. D.H. Bolt Jr. and Charles Bolt remained in Natchitoches and were farmers. They married women of mixed race who clearly identified as black or mulatto. Had they married a white woman in Louisiana in that era with that background, they would probably have been lynched. It is also likely that they followed their parents' example and did not let race dictate who they loved. Though both men were considered white in census records, the community did not forget their mother was Florestine, a former slave. Henry Bolt moved to Missouri and became a locomotive engineer for the railroad. He died of a heart attack while kneeling down for evening prayers one night when he was 47 years old. William Bolt, the son who tried to erase his past, moved to Shreveport and became an accomplished and respected dentist. Late in life, he moved to Missouri to be close to his brother and died in his dental office. His brother, Henry, arriving late from his run as the Missouri Pacific engineer, found his brother's body. Mary Elizabeth became a carpenter's wife in Texas. Alice married and also moved to Missouri and spent time in Chicago as well. Josephine married and lived her life in New Hampshire before dying at her daughter's home in Massachusetts. The celebrated Laura did choose to fall in love and marry. Her husband, John Fry, was a Civil War veteran, and the couple lived in Brooklyn, New York, with Laura's sister, Victoria, who remained single her whole life. All the Bolt children identified as white. Most chose to leave Louisiana and its structure of oppression forever. All were educated with good careers and strong sense of family. They lived their lives as a testament to the love that their parents, David and Florestine, instilled in them. David and Florestine Bolt had the courage to love each other and commit to each other in a time and place where their relationship was at first forbidden and later scorned. Love meant more to them than public opinion, status, and threats of violence. Florestine, born into slavery, owned by her father, part of a household in which her white family members denied her relationship to them, grew up to marry a man who loved and openly acknowledged her. She raised 13 children who knew they were loved, who were free, and who were always acknowledged. Thanks for listening to episode 10 of In Their Shoes. 
I hope you found Florestine's story as interesting and complex as I did. It's worth noting that there is a fictional story published on Amazon um, in an electronic version uh, that was written by someone who knew a little bit about Florestine and the Bolts, but didn't know the full the full uh, details of her life and clearly didn't have access to primary source documents and was more of a fiction writer and not a historian. So you may encounter that online and I want you to know that um, that is a fictional representation of Florestine's life. It's not accurate. The um, information presented here all came from primary source documents and um, deep research into the probate records and um, uh, conveyance records of Natchitoches Parish, newspapers, census records, um, and a wealth of other documents. I've been a professional historian for 16 years, and each story I tell is extensively researched using primary source documents. If you're interested in my more of my work, you can find me at www.katymshannon.com. That's K-A-T-Y-S-H-A-N-N-O-N, Katie with Shannon, or follow me on Instagram at Katie M. Shannon Author. That's Katie with a Y, M. Shannon Author. Also, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single story. Feel free to leave a review. I'd love to know what your thoughts and opinions are and um, receive some feedback from you. See you next week when we put on a new pair of shoes and walk around in them. Thank you.